As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Bar humbug. But I mean, we, we, this is our first episode of December and you're already bar humbugging. I'm getting my bar humbugs in early. This is the first window on the Reasons to be Cheerful advent calendar. Yeah, where is it, the advent calendar? Well, it doesn't exist. It's doesn't metaphorical. It? Oh, really? What's December the 3rd? Behind the door. Yeah. I think A visit to the legislature. <laughs> Please, please. You're just trying to wear me down, aren't you? That's, I know what's going on here. I think it's uh, if we open the door of December the 3rd, it's uh, it's a, a lovely picture of you dressed as an elf Aww. making toys in Santa's workshop. It sort of seems to come around quicker every year at Christmas. It does. I think for next year we should do an Ed calendar, though. I'm not saying sort of like a topless uh, calendar. Good. Some, something tasteful. Good. Like Cliff Richard's annual calendar. What do you like most about Christmas? Um, it's probably binging on food. Well, actually, I've told you before, I love watching Christmas films. Yeah. And I did my first one already. Uh, we, we already watched Love Actually this week. Really? Yeah. You're yeah. so easy to please, aren't you? What you at thinking? some levels you aren't, and at some levels you are. No. I, I just like a little, I like a little <laughs> That's bit good, of a, actually. A, a seasonal festive ritual. I don't know, like, there are all manner of problems with that film. But, you know, it's, it's fun to watch. Have a little cry. Point out its imperfections. Yeah, so uh, that's so, good. So, well, anyway, you'll keep me you'll keep me afloat during Christmas. Definitely. So, should we talk about what we're talking about? Yes, we're talking about neurodiversity. This is a very interesting subject. How would you describe it? <laughs> I, I think it's about. Uh, I don't know if it's a bit corny, but sort of celebrating the talents of all yeah. different types of 
person, no matter yeah. how your brain is wired. Yeah, and it's particularly championed by autistic people who feel that, you know, society needs to recognise, yes, some of the difficulties that they face, but also some of the talents that they have. And and I think it is really, really important. And we've got a very, very good conversation with long-time podcast fan, Penny Andrews, and Georgia Harper, who presented a Channel 4 documentary on this subject uh, and also works for Autistica UK. And we'll be joined by comedian Jodie Mitchell, who's uh, got some ideas, which maybe they're reasons to be cheerful. Maybe they're, I mean, they usually are, if we're yeah. honest, but uh, that's Jodie Mitchell. And what's yours? Reasons to be cheerful this week. I went to see my friend, Tom Allen, who is a comedian. He's he's fantastic, he, and he's just the loveliest man, sort of person you really root for. And he's had, had this sort of stratospheric couple of years and he ended up playing the london palladium wow on friday night so we went along to that and um i picked up my tickets which he put to one yeah. side for me and he put us in a box wow so his, his mum and dad were in the royal box and we were in the box how many it. people are at the london palladium a couple of thousand cheapers yeah. yeah and it was just just brilliant and no one deserves it more and uh, it was great to sit in a box eating maltesers and looking down on people you didn't drop any Maltesers on, no, on no, people. No, 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 no. Didn't go that far. Was it like crunchy Maltesers? Yeah, I mean, what Maltesers have you been eating that aren't crunchy? Should you be making stale ones? Are you getting ones past the sell by Should you be day? making crunchy noises in the middle of the sort of? Oh, I see. See where this yeah. is going. Well, I, I think if they sell it at the theatre, then it's you're, okay. You're okay to eat it at the theatre. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you're quite intolerant of people who like scrunch crisp packets and all that, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, because scrunching the crisp packet is, is a different thing. Well, Maltesers in a box. Yeah, I, I chew very yeah. slowly. I'm very Do you? Uh, yeah, so you're quite careful about the crunch. Oh, very, very much so. Yeah, yeah that's I, good. I, yeah, I'm well, well behaved in a theatre. How about you? What is your reason so to be cheerful? tonight I am taking my children to see Liz Benine, who I mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago, who did the documentary on plastic. She's giving a... a talk about plastic with a like a panel of experts on plastic so it's a very kind of adult event i'm taking them to uh, and we're going to go and have a burger beforehand and i'm going to have a vegan burger from beyond meat uh-huh. which i think is this california company i will report back on the beyond meat vegan burger well let me say say the the vegan burger and the uh, the scientific talk i mean that sounds like something uncle jeff might have en- enjoyed being invited along to <laughs> is george ezra going really <laughs> you taking george ezra yeah but he, yeah he but he was really keen reasons to be cheerful a podcast about ideas with ed miliband and jeff lloyd Joining us are our friend Penny Andrews, who is a university researcher who was diagnosed as autistic in her early 30s, and Georgia Harper, who is a policy and public affairs officer for Autistica UK and co-presented a Channel 4 documentary, Are You Autistic? So I'd I'd like to start by uh, just asking you about this word neurodiversity, about how we define it and and why it's important that people know about it. Georgia, do you want to just start? Neurodiversity is basically just a term that describes um, the natural variations in the way the human brain can develop. So autism is one part of that. Well, it's many parts of that because the spectrum is so diverse, but neurodiversity also encompasses things like learning disabilities, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia. And I guess more widely, the neurodiversity movement is 
it's about, I guess, accepting and embracing neurodiversity. It's not saying that everything's perfect and everything's wonderful and we don't have difficulties, but that those difficulties aren't a reason to think of the way our brains work as being worthless or, you know, a terrible bad thing. And is it kind of like saying there's not a right way for the brain to work? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. An academic called Luke Bearden says there's actually like the the dominant phenotype. There's no such thing as normal, we know Mm -hmm. anyway, but there's the dominant phenotype and then there's loads of different phenotypes. And actually neurodiverse people, and particularly autistic people, we're as different from each other as we are from that broad phenotype. It's actually a word that was originally quite narrow. It was come up with by an autistic sociologist in the late 90s called Judy Singer. Um, because there were a lot of new words coming out at the time, like biodiversity, and people were talking about cultural diversity. And at the time, when everybody was talking about autism, they were talking about it in terms of what was wrong with us and what was missing, and how we were badly different from the normal, and how being different was disordered. And particularly at the time in the US and definitely here as well, actually, everything was focused on children who were autistic and the families of autistic people. And it still really is in a lot of ways, particularly in the US, as I would say, but autistic adults at the time were trying to organise as a group to say, hey, you know, we have a voice, we have something to say about this, stop just talking about us. And they started forming these self-advocacy networks so that people could hear about us from us instead of just always being people's parents or professionals or teachers. And it, it, it was really autistic people who embraced that and then it broadened out to other things. And that's quite controversial because some autistic people really don't want it to cover things like ADHD and dyspraxia and I've got cerebral palsy as well as autism so I think I can't sometimes separate what is autism and what is that Mm -hmm. then some people online certainly will broaden it even further and use it to talk about all mental health conditions which I don't think is particularly helpful because I have depression, anxiety and PTSD as well as autism. But lots and lots and lots of people have mild depression and it doesn't mean that their brain overall works differently. And there are also some people within the autism community who really hate neurodiversity because they think that, like George was saying, that it means we're just being really positive and we're ignoring the disabling aspects of autism. And then some autism parents are like, well, my kids can't talk why are you talking over us the neurodiversity movement is just loads of really highly intelligent articulate people talking over the needs and wants of people who can't articulate those for themselves so it's quite a complicated thing but penny why do you think the neurodiversity idea and the neurodiversity movement are important is it because it stops autism being seen as somehow a sort of like a bad thing or or you know something to be sort of cured somehow is it is it it sort of makes makes it more likely there's going to be acceptance of it mm. is that part of it yeah i i think so it's partly that removal of stigma um but it's also i think some people will say we have superpowers and we don't or that we're automatically brilliant at technology and that's not not true either but there are differences with neurodiverse people that aren't just about the deficits, that aren't just about what we can't do or what doesn't work as well as other people. So say if you talk about the sensory aspects of autism and dyspraxia and um, audio processing disorder that some people have and sensory processing disorder, it's not just that, you know, certain smells and sounds and 
and light and stuff like that is unbearable or distracting it's also that we can experience more pleasure in those things and see things in them that other people can't and things like our special interests you know um, special interests are a big part of autism and related conditions and people can be quite dismissive about them but we take really great pleasure in them more pleasure than other people perhaps would take in other things Georgia, how do you how do you see it, and why is it important to you this neurodiversity idea? Um, I mean, yeah, I agree. I think it's about it's. I don't think it's about you know pretending that everything's amazing, but I think it's you know it's not like neurotypical people don't have problems, and I think acceptance and kind of just like basic understanding of the challenges you might face can go some way to help adapt to those and kind of work around them. I agree with a lot of what Penny said. Autism does have its downsides. It also has its perks. What's, a, what's an obvious perk? Special interests, I would say, is a big one for me. Um, I've already spent far too much of this morning going on about the new series of Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think just being able to get into something that much, and I think those sorts of things can be workarounds for the more challenging aspects in terms of social things which obviously a lot I find difficult a lot of my friends from university are from that university's Dr Hugh Society which um, I'm you know even though I've graduated years ago I'm still in touch with them and you know it's about embracing those kind of positive aspects of being neurodivergent and also accepting the um, the more challenging aspects because as I say, it's not about pretending everything's wonderful, but if people understood and accepted our difficulties more, we can then start working essentially with our brains rather than against it and working around those things. So can, can we talk about what those difficulties are for, for you two personally? Okay. Um, so for me, I guess, I mean, it's obviously quite a big question because I've never not been autistic. When were you so diagnosed, if I may ask? So I was diagnosed at nine. Which right. I was, it's very lucky, particularly as a girl, to be diagnosed right. so young. Um, and for me, I guess, um, as Penny's touched on, um, things like, you know, sudden loud noises, conflicting noises, uh, crowds, textures, t- changes in temperature, no one ever thinks about that one, um, can be like an overwhelming wave of sensory information and in the worst cases lead to kind of shutdowns and meltdowns and panic attacks and whatnot. Socially, things like sarcasm, metaphor, Something I've got better at, obviously, as I've got older, but um, are things I struggle with. But, you know, in the same breath, it means that I can listen to the same songs on repeat without getting bored with them. Or I might be, you know, the fact that I don't understand the little social norms might also help me to question and challenge the, you know, the bigger ones that might not necessarily be as helpful as people assume. Yeah. And is, is that the same kind of stuff that's true for you, Penny? Well, I was diagnosed uh, a lot later than Georgia, which is partly to do with, I think I'm I'm a bit older than Georgia. I'm in my late 30s, so people didn't know so much about autism when I was younger. So I was diagnosed when I was 30, which was eight years ago. To get a diagnosis as an adult, it's not enough just to have autistic traits. You, you need to, it needs to have some disabling aspects on your life and and there needs to be some sort of quality of life reason for the essentially to pay for you to have the diagnosis Mm. and for me I was struggling at work a lot um in relationships I I can't stand being on the phone normally I can only really do this because I already know you right (laughs) Right. and I know what you're going to say and I, I, I I'm comfortable with you um a lot of the same stuff 
Georgia says, and particularly what she was saying about challenging social norms. I mean, I'm an outlier amongst outliers. I'm not. I'm not typically autistic, but I'm not typically anything. I'm just mm. kind of eccentrically, weirdly me in a way that people can't put their finger on. And it means I do challenge a lot of both small and large um, social norms. You know, I, I identify as non-binary transgender. I'm bisexual. I will tell people when they're being uh, offensive or upsetting people. It's made me into a better activist, I think. I think as a researcher, I look for different explanations for things and find different patterns in things because I'm not just going to see the default thing. But it means that I make different assumptions from other people. So it's not that I don't assume things. It's just that if you've got the predominant uh, phenotype of brain, if somebody says something, most people will infer the same thing from what they're saying. And I won't. So if, if there's any ambiguity, I might go a different way with it. And that can be quite difficult sometimes. And also, you know, like in friendships, friendships will quite often end for autistic people when somebody will kind of be a bit passive aggressive with them. So they'll expect us to notice that they're giving us really subtle signals that they're not happy with us doing something. Or they'll expect us just to know as human mm. beings that we've done something wrong. But actually, unless we're told outright, we don't know. So our friends and our acquaintances might suppress their problems with us. And then they will say, well, you know, I've cut you lots of slack on this, but actually you're an awful person, goodbye. And they'll just cut us dead, which is very difficult for us to understand and very upsetting. And they don't understand how we can be quite sensitive and nuanced and have a lot of effective empathy for other people. We get upset when they get upset. We will cry at films and TV probably even more than other people. And we find injustice really, really troubling. But at the same time, we won't notice that they didn't mean what they said or say what they meant, which is very, very difficult. I, mean, I think you've both set out really well why neurodiversity matters and then a bit about your own experiences. What then does this mean for society so that we embrace neurodiversity? Because then that's the sort of interesting next question, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's not there's not like a magic wand that you can wave to fix everything. Um, but I think on an individual level, it's kind of about again just kind of just like believing people i mean it's worth noting that you know we don't go around with giant neon signs saying i'm neurodivergent most autistic adults as as penny rightly pointed out because of it was historically not recognized most autistic adults don't even know they're autistic themselves never mind other people yeah. knowing um so i think it's worth you know pointing out that you shouldn't have to wait for someone to come forward and disclose a diagnosis i guess for people to, to you know for to be like believed when you say you know, this is bothering me or I have a hard time with this or I can't do phone calls. I, I can only sort of do phone calls. So massive well done, Penny. Um, so, yeah, so, but, but also, I, I mean, I'm thinking about employers, for yeah. example. I mean, what you know, the, there is, do? well, there's lots of experience, isn't there, of, aut yeah. of people with autism finding it hard to get in jobs, maybe, you know, hard to get in, in understanding from employers where, when they're in a job. I mean, presumably there's just huge amounts that needs to change oh, in that yeah. respect. I mean, I'm quite lucky because I should probably own up at this point that I work for an awesome charity. So I guess I kind of have that baseline understanding. But like, I think it's, again, it's it's about realising that not everyone will be able to work a certain way. 
And, you know, that kind of applies across the board in education. Not everyone is going to be able to learn in the rigid way that we currently teach. So schools as well. Yeah. So I think like something that I found a bit weird when I was kind of moving into the world of work is that everyone says, you know, you're you can ask for reasonable adjustments, but no one ever explains what they might be. And I mean, right. it's quite difficult because obviously, even just in autism, in this one condition, it, like every autistic person is different. Never mind bringing in the whole range of, you know, challenges that someone might have. Yeah, that's really huge. When I went for my first job after I'd had the diagnosis and I knew a bit more about it. I was doing some some work with the local council on their autism strategy. Autism isn't usually in my life, but obviously I'm a, I am an activist and yeah. I do work yeah. on it partly. And I've been an autism researcher in the past, and uh, even though it's my usual research topic. And and th- there was a charity who said, "Oh, we can give you a list of reasonable adjustments that have worked for some of our clients." And they didn't all apply for me, but it was really useful to have a place yeah, to start. Exactly. The occupational exactly. health asked me, and I went well, I've never worked in that kind of building before. I've never done that kind of job before. I can tell you some stuff that was absolutely horrible in jobs I've had in the past. And then you don't, even when things are kind of reasonable, they may not work. So, for example, I prefer um, a, a side lamp instead of, you know, what Jeff might call having the big lights on, what we call it. In the <laughs> <laughs> um, it it's better, it's less harsh, and it's certainly better than sort of fluorescent light. But actually, if you work in an open plan office, as I was in that job, I couldn't ever use my lamp. They gave me a lamp as a reasonable adjustment, but I could never use it because it would have affected everybody else in the office. And trying to find that reasonable line is quite difficult because actually what would be reasonable for me is to work in the tiny office on my own. But people see that as you getting something extra. And I know that young people, when they're at school and university, they're aware that other people, other students around them and even teachers and um, lecturers might think that they're getting something extra when they ask for something like that. But if you improve things for um, neurodiverse people in in employment and in education, it actually makes things better for everybody else because Mm. there's lots of things that neurotypical people can cope with but they're still coping with it it's not ideal like a flickering light is not ideal noise outside where you're trying to work or study is not ideal people not telling you in advance of a meeting what it's going to be about is not ideal that happens a lot to me penny yeah people putting in the job description things that aren't that aren't actually necessary or aren't really explained that's harmful to lots of groups of people particularly diverse groups of people if a job says that you have to have great communication skills, well, I have in some ways. I'm, I'm, I've done lots of media work, you know, um, more than other people. But in other ways, if you want me to be on the job half a day, it's on the phone on half a day, not on the job. You want me to be working. Then it's it's not really going to work. Or, you know, what does this term mean? Um, like in academic jobs, it will say uh, a publication record concomitant with their career stage. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I think I think just to add to that, there's kind of this attitude of like, oh, you know, I'm putting up with this. You should have to as well. We're all putting up with this. And it's kind of on the one hand... Like, no, actually, it's different. So, you know, yeah. it's, it, for us, it could be a difference between yeah. a meltdown and not a meltdown. Yeah. But at the same time, 
it sometimes makes you think, well, why are we all putting up with this? If it's a problem for everyone, yeah. then that's it actually should be more reason to think about changing it rather than less. And, and can I ask, this isn't just about employers accommodating something. Surely there are things that people who aren't neurotypical can, can bring to a workplace that people who are perhaps can't. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? This is, this is kind of a, a controversial topic for me in particular because there are some autism organisations and schemes that kind of go, oh, well, autistic people are brilliant in the workplace because they don't mind doing repetitive tasks or they're really good at computer programming. And that just seems to restrict what we can do and reduce us to kind of a useful economic unit. That's that, that's not particularly a helpful way of viewing us. But if you get us to think about what our strengths are and take a strengths-based approach to to our lives, not just in education and employment, then that's much better because there's some stuff that other people that I can do that other people never could do, and I'm sure it's absolutely. The What's same. a good example of that, Penny? For me, I can synthesize. That sounds it's a very big word, but I synthesize information really well, and I can also read really quickly and mm. digest stuff and link that stuff together. So, if you want to have a literature review on something, I'm I'm genuinely the best person to ask because I won't restrict myself to. Um, one discipline to look to look at that topic. I'm really good at putting together search strategies, and I'll find stuff from um, government publications, from charity reports, from loads of different um, academic disciplines, from books and all sorts, and put you together a really diverse and well-rounded report quite quickly that brings together all the ideas. And that's that's actually quite an unusual skill, and it's something that draws on my strengths as an autistic person. It's not something that everybody could do. That's really well put. I think, like, weirdly, I would probably say my strengths are quite similar um, in that I'm quite good at kind of going away and researching a topic and coming back with, you know, a ton of information narrowed down to a briefing. Um which is probably not the best example because obviously autistic people are very different and you've ended up with two quite similar people in that respect. But I think sometimes the empo- like employment schemes can kind of put us in a box. But I think in terms of actually persuading employers to take, you know, to take us on, sometimes that's kind of, you kind of have to look at what's in it for them. And I think things like, you know, attention to detail that perhaps not all autistic people are good at, but a lot are good at. And I also think that it's sometimes just a case of like, if you're excluding autistic people directly or indirectly from your employment then you're missing out on potentially the best person for the job not because they're autistic just because they happen to be very qualified or you're just excluding a pool of people who might you know be really good at the job absolutely and also from a diversity diversity perspective not just a neurodiversity one the more diverse your team is the better it is going to be at doing the job Absolutely. and serving whatever audience you have because there's a wider range of perspectives on it. Can we just talk about prejudice in daily life beyond employers? Because you can talk about what employers should do to embrace neurodiversity, but it's also about what all of us should be doing to embrace neurodiversity. You know, I think things have certainly got better. I think we've come a long way. I'd say growing up, 
something that's interesting about, you know, kind of prejudice and things like bullying and discrimination is no one outright says to you, you're autistic, so I'm going to bully you, which means mm. that people like us, it can be quite difficult to spot. Um, and it wasn't necessarily, you know, you're autistic, so it's because you move weirdly or, you know, we stim, so you know, movements we do to regulate sensory information. Um, it's, you, know, you move weirdly, you act weirdly, you're, you know. Uh, something that I did find quite a lot was that um, people used to think that my meltdowns were quite funny. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure why. They really right. weren't. Um, and then would kind of try and trigger those with... Um, At the school. Terrible, yeah, yeah, with kind of the, the terrible bad consequences. Uh, and I think as I got older, it's not so much outright prejudice as that kind of subtle exclusion. So, you know, the fact that you can't necessarily get medical appointments or make inquiries into certain services without making a phone call. <laughs> which yeah. is something I find quite difficult or, you know, the fact that particularly sort of going through university and socialising, it's all very indirect communication and very sort of sensory hell nightclubs. It's not necessarily a deliberate thing, but it's a sort of, people don't tend to know or think about how that might affect different groups of people. Penny? I've spoken a bit before about how it's worked in friendships, but people think I'm too intense as a person, that I stand <laughs> too close and that I'm a bit too full on. Um, and they think I'm weird for my special interests because my special interests, I have some that lots of people agree with, like Doctor Who. I share that with Georgia. <laughs> and it's really good that Ryan in Doctor Who is dyspraxic. Yes. That helps. <laughs> um, but, you know, when I got diagnosed with autism, one of the special interests they were asking me about was the 2010 Labour leadership election. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, people will always talk to me, uh, and I'm sure Ed knows this, you know, about my Eds, because I really like both yeah. Milliman yeah. and Ed And you've got earrings <laughs> to prove it. And, and I have earrings, and I possibly have other items, but I, I always try to be respectful if, it, if my special interests involve a real person. I really sure. am paranoid about creeping people sure. out. Sure. Um, but um, people will um, not always remember how autism affects me. So they'll either make assumptions like I'm autistic, so I can't possibly be sensitive to this or I can't possibly enjoy yeah. this. Or they'll think I'm just being disingenuous and using it as an excuse for things. Because actually most autistic people have what we call a spiky profile. So we're good at some things and bad at others. And it's not necessarily the same things consistently all the time. The same person can be very articulate and very verbal in some situations and completely unable to speak in others. Like I don't have a stammer, but I end up with symptoms that are like a stammer in situations where I'm very, very anxious. And then people will start talking to me as if I'm intellectually impaired and I'm very I get very upset about people the stigma that's attached to people who have learning disabilities and do have an intellectual impairment and I get upset with autistic people who prefer the mm. word Asperger's to autism because they don't want to be associated with with our siblings who have that but it's it, when people sort of use that diagnosis as as the, as as the whole of who you are that's really unpleasant and upsetting. And I, I also see a lot of autism prejudice in society. So people will say, oh, incels, they're all autistic boys who live at home. Or um, anybody who wants to be involved in politics, it's re they're really autistic and they have a really narrow view of the world. Or people who work in Silicon Valley, they're really terrible at 
designing software that works for normal people because they're also autistic. And there's another sort of issue I really want to mention because I really loved the episode of the podcast that was about trans issues. And I know that Ed and Jeff must have taken a lot of heat from that because I know I take a lot of grief online from anti-trans activists. But there are a lot of us who are autistic and gender variant. It's, it's more than in the general population. I mean, one study said that... Um, one in ten of people going to gender clinics was autistic compared with sort of one in 100 people in the general population is autistic and even less than that are, are trans. Um, so we're accused now by some of the anti-trans activists who's picked up on this because people are getting diagnosed with both gender dysphoria and autism a lot younger that we're being ableist and that we're trying to convert children to being trans or that we can't possibly understand it because as autistic people we're really limited and we obviously have a very limited understanding of gender and sexuality and sex or that we can't we can't do nuance. So there are some people who say, well, I won't respect trans people's pronouns because I'm autistic and or my child is autistic and they wouldn't do it because they can't possibly lie because it's completely illogical. <laughs> and that just is it's ridiculous mm. because autism is millions of things. It's, it's, a, it's a spectrum and it's not a scale. It's not like the Kinsey scale for sexuality where it goes from like one to six. It's this big colour wheel of things and we're all this mass of different elements at different times and it doesn't mean that we're incapable of things I, I'm really, and you can be I, autistic and rude no, <laughs> but I'm, that's not a given yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that one up Penny because like it's something that we see a, a lot recently of people like only bothering to pretend to care about autistic people autistic children because when they're trying to push like a transphobic agenda and like they can't be trans because they're really autistic and i mean i'm i'm not transgender myself so i'm probably not best place to speak on this but it just makes me really angry because the underlying assumption is and autistic people can't know their own minds but yeah <laughs> can i ask you the um what what is the million dollar question on this podcast which is the jeffocracy question so this is a world in which jeff uh is a benign dictator I, I have trouble getting those words out just to sort I'm of really benign. really <laughs> kind of in, in the sort of believe that i am embracing uh, neurodiversity the yeah. small color so, wheel so, so yeah but you make us listen to the beatles all the time jeff it's not entirely this, this is true yeah Je yeah <laughs> jeff jeff makes you the uh joint secretaries of state for neurodiversity what's the things that you would be uh telling him he needs to do or doing so i think for me i mean as i say it's quite a difficult question because there isn't, like, one easy fix. Of course. Um, I would say for autism, something that's come up quite a bit recently that I would quite like to see in future is more kind of consistency, possibly at a commissioning level, around post-diagnosis support. Because so many people, particularly adults, and I don't know if this was your experience, Penny, basically get diagnosed and then sort of sent away with a leaflet or, you know, end up end up being pushed between learning disability services where they go, oh, you don't have a learning disability, or mental health services where they say, oh, you don't have a mental health condition. People or services tend to assume that autism is someone else's problem right. a lot of the time, or there's like a specialist autism service that sometimes exists but sometimes doesn't. Um, so I'd, I'd like to see more kind of joined up thinking around there, basically. Penny? Yeah. Penny? I've got quite long thoughts on this just because obviously I'm quite intimately uh, aware of the Jeffocracy concept. <laughs> yeah. I've about this for a long time. It's a bit like being asked on Desert Island. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, one of the basic things I think is 
disability activist movement thing of nothing about us without us. Mm. So I think including a range of neurodiverse people in all impact assessments and policy making, not just about autism, and not just those who sort of would have a role as part of their jobs, like say Georgia does, or who were unable to work so freely during the day, because when I did some stuff with uh, the local council on autism, I had to stop doing it because I was at work during the day. And it meant that the people who turned up were a very represented a very narrow range of autistic people who were available I would introduce that and I would enforce the Equality Act like Harriet Harman wants to do I'd enforce it properly and the Autism Act 2010 which is about adults with autism um, well I prefer autistic adults to be fair but I would enforce that properly when designing buildings and services because Building when people design buildings and services, they don't really consider autistic people at all. I mean, they're very bad at considering disabled yeah. people. Full stop. They just kind of go, well, we've made some of the doors wider and we've put in a ramp. It's it, it's very badly designed, and in a more fun way because the Jeffocracy shouldn't be as dull as the actual government. Um, I think. I'd like people to be supported with our special interests into adulthood. There's quite a lot of stuff around supporting children and young people with special interests, but not in adulthood and not being pitied or mocked for it. So if like neurodiverse people into your thing, which, you know, you know, it can be very niche or it can be very broad. Don't be freaked out about it or patronise us because we may well be your most loyal fans or supporters or customers and also your best critical friends. Mm. You know, we try not to be comic book guy, but, you know, we will point out what's wrong with your thing as well. And policy and funding could support that better, just like it should support lifelong learning better. Um, I want to use an example that Peter Capaldi, when he was when he played the doctor, um, a lot of um, autistic young people really felt close to his doctor. And I wrote him a letter because he was so open about sharing stuff about this, saying thank you so much for being not patronising and telling us, oh, you've done so well. Isn't it lovely that you like Doctor Who? But actually being de- treating us as decent mm-hmm. human beings. And he wrote me a letter back and he really got it. And that meant the world to me. And... Uh, both my Eds, Ed Millipans and Ed Balls have both been really lovely to me and not kind of treated me like a mad nutter who's just really into them. And I think if if more uh, objects of fandom, if you like, could be encouraged to be like that, it would make the world a better and happier place in the Jeffocracy. I mean, I think that's great. D- don't you also think we need to educate employers, though? Because I think this, I, I, I know it's not all about employment, but it, but it, but it also is, you know, I think GCHQ, for example, the former head of GCHQ, Robert Hannigan, thought this was really important to have people who, you know, to, to embrace neurodiversity. And I think, I think maybe those examples are too few and far between. Uh, absolutely. I think, like, I think a lot of them, you know, a lot has improved around employment, but, um, you know, unfortunately, the unemployment rates for autistic people are still absolutely shocking. Yeah. Um, there was some research that came out over the summer um, around autistic graduates and that even though the fact that autistic people might be more likely to get higher grade, we're still more likely to be unemployed. Yeah. And that doesn't like improve when you do like a master's or a PhD or so it's, you know, it's still quite a dire situation. Um, but I think more widely, it's just kind of about accepting that some people have different needs and that's okay and it doesn't mean they're going to be any less good at the job, for example, in this context. Um, And it's just, you know, about believing people and accepting that, you know, not everyone is going to be able to work in a certain way or 
without certain adjustments more widely you know in healthcare not everyone is going to present people with the same conditions might present differently and for example autistic people might have a hard time communicating that something's wrong either physically or mentally it's it's just about not kind of putting everyone into a tiny yeah. box because as was mentioned earlier it's really not good for neurodivergent people but it's not good for anyone yeah, the training is super important and not just being seen as like a half day tick box training course. I mean, even teachers get a very small amount of training on, on special educational needs and autism is only a tiny bit of that. And the same with other services um, and people sort of don't take it seriously. I think sometimes people get it when they're looking at people who have higher support needs, but they don't get it with those of us who might present as normal if you like a lot of the time and then suddenly go a way that they're not expecting in a job interview or in a job you mentioned gchq earlier and the kind of i think the kind of the technology sector and the i guess the more autism stereotypes or like science and that have been have been quite quite leading the way on the employment front i would like to see that expand because not all autistic people are working in science and tech and maths i would like more under like more i guess awareness of the fact that if you've got a decent sized workplace there's probably already an autistic person in it like whether they know it or not um and you know it's not just that all autistic people go into one particular sector and if you're not in that sector you don't need to worry about it we're as different as neurotypical people are different and we're kind of everywhere that sounds slightly creepy and scary we're behind you (laughs) i think they've got the job don't you jeff so yeah i I mean i bow to you as the benign dictator to make that judgment and i've made that judgment they've got the job good georgia and penny thank you so much for joining us thank you for inviting me so what are your thoughts oh i thought it was really interesting and i thought both penny and georgia were incredibly sort of articulate explaining why this neurodiversity thing matters. I think a lot of it is about us and about the way people react to autistic people, which is often, I think it's it's a sort of betrayal of our own sort of insecurities and not sure how to deal with it. And so in a way, I think the sort of process of education to understand sort of what the basis of it is, why it's not sort of just sort of abnormal or you know you know what I mean and I think I think that is probably still the way lots of people in society react including employers yeah I think the the color wheel analogy is a very uh, useful one for people it also also struck me it would be good to see people who aren't neurotypical in positions of making decisions about em- employing other people and and the way that they would evaluate and see things i mean i've got a great story so like, there's a young guy in my constituency harry who's just got onto the town local town council he's autistic when i first met him he wasn't he would like almost you know not want to come to meetings and all that and now he's got onto the the, the local town council and in a way i think it's coming to appreciate what what people's talents are I, and i think at the same time and i think it's important what penny said it's not sort of sugar coaching you know there'll be parents who are listening to this who've got you know severely autistic kids and who'll be sort of really worried and think they need help so it's not saying that you don't people don't need help of different kinds but it is saying we've got to sort of appreciate people for who they are and not almost try and force them to be something else you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed milliband and jeff lloyd as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell b2b either 
That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Love to hear from you. Perhaps if you are somebody who's neurodivergent and you want to tell us about your experiences or ideas to improve things, we'd love to hear from you. And any thoughts you have on this week's episode in general or ideas for future ones, you can yeah. email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Twitter or Instagram at cheerfulpodcast or Facebook is facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. Uh, this one about our last episode on the death penalty comes from Charlie Beaumont, who says... Um, the episode was particularly fascinating as the idea, as Anna indicated, that anyone has the right to put another human being to death is hugely frightening from my perspective and entirely immoral. The point made with respect to everyone is much better than their worst 15 minutes is one I shall uh, definitely hang on to. One issue I feel could have been given great prominence relates to the rehabilitation of those who have offended. Whilst in the probation service, I work with lifers in both the community and in custody, one of two of whom had actually been sentenced to death in this country but had been reprieved. I evidenced the capacity for individuals to make good and to contribute in a positive way to society despite having committed the most violent of crimes. Society's recognition of the capacity to change and the understanding that officials working with those who have offended have a genuine ability to risk assess in an effective way, uh, emphasise both the importance of never giving up hope on any individual and the need to have confidence in those who are responsible for determining whether someone is safe to return to the community. And I think that's actually a really important point. And there's been this sort of semi-privatisation of parts of the probation service, which I don't think is going too well. Uh, I think it is a good, it's a good topic for future podcasts. But 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 I want to get on to uh, an email we've had from Mike McQuaid and 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 
I mean, this is really mind-blowing because it does show you are changing the world, Jeff. And it's called Assault on the Senses. And he says, hi, Ed and Jeff. Thanks for the podcast. I've listened to everyone and attended two of your live shows. I've learned a lot, but the most impactful thing has been learning that my dishwasher requires salt. Right, I've owned a dishwasher for 10 years before realising what the salt button did. You'll be glad to hear that my dishwasher is now salted, although sadly not as easily as it sounds like with Jeff's fancy salt box. (laughs) Keep up the good work. I mean... That should be your slogan, you're changing the world one yeah. granule at a time. <laughs> and that's what you're doing, Jeff. It is, yeah. I mean, honestly, I think you should feel incredibly proud. I do, yeah, one granule you know, at a time. Be the change you, you know... Want to you see want in your dishwasher. Yeah. yeah. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. And here with some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by comedian Jodie Mitchell. Hello. 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 Actually, when I say comedian, comedian and podcaster. Yes. Because you, you also have been dipping your toes in these waters. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, I've just launched a new podcast with Sophie Hagen, which is called Secret Dinosaur Cult. Wow. Yeah, it is quite culty. What is the Secret Dinosaur Cult and how do we join it? Well, you can join it by coming to a live cult meeting slash recording of the podcast. See what we've done there. We have a lot of live audience recordings that we do, but the dinosaurs are sort of a superficial veneer to discuss uh, trauma and daddy issues. All those kind of hilarious things that you would usually expect to come up in a comedy podcast. (laughs) Sounds great. And very much no dinosaurs, though. Oh, no. Solid dinosaur content. You can expect to learn a lot about dinosaurs. Do you have a favourite dinosaur? I think my favourite dinosaur so far is uh, Sue the non-binary T-Rex. She's very famous T-Rex. She's actually very famous on Twitter as well. She was identified as a female T-Rex, but then actually it was discovered that there was no scientific backing to sort of identifying her as a specific gender. And so she's now identified as non-binary. Wow. I know. There you go. She's probably got more Twitter followers than I have. Probably. Yep. So you've brought along some ideas, Jodie, uh, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Uh, what's, your, what's your first one? Well, my first idea actually came about because I was talking to a lot of friends that are working in office environments at the moment. And it is that all women should be issued with a recording device that's linked to a tiny speaker that gets hidden in the mouth. And whenever a man steals your idea and is sort of repeating it as though he came up with it in the first place, you can hit record on the device and then it will replay the idea as though it's coming from your own mouth and you can sort of lip sync along to it. (laughs) And you, of course, will be given full credit for the idea because it's being said in the authoritative male voice and you can play it louder than the original speaking of that guy. So you'll be given more credit than him. I definitely understand the basis for the idea, but just explain this. The man says, here's my idea, yep. but he's stolen it from a female colleague. Yes. He might not. He might have uh, mentioned it earlier. You mentioned it earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, but what has happening as he's saying it then? The recording device is just recording it. Yes. And then it replays it I from this tiny speaker. See through... People will be completely bamboozled by the fact that this the audio is coming from your mouth. I mean, you, there are other variants on this, presumably, which is that you could have a sort of an alarm system mm. so that when a bloke steals a woman's idea, a sort of you know, big klaxon goes off or yeah. something. Yeah, because that might be more comfortable than, than having a speaker in your mouth. That's true. I yeah. mean, I'm going to be fully honest with you. I haven't fully thought through. <laughs> no, no, no. But I think it's definitely. Yeah. I mean, you could go out to consultation. I think on it. Don't yeah. you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Open consultation. Uh, okay. What you got next, Jody? I think that whenever people go on too much about the past being amazing, 
they should have to put on sort of image tinted glasses so not like rose tinted glasses but sort of glasses that maybe have like a a sketched out solid picture of the past on them so they have to wear them and that will confuse them into thinking they're back there and then they will stop talking about it or like virtual reality maybe yeah that could be an upgrade you know those like you, you know yeah so what would this be? Everything closed on Wednesday afternoon? Everything's in black Sundays, and white. Everything's in black and white. <laughs> yeah. There's cholera. I mean, are these the type of things you're talking about? Yeah, a touch of cholera, maybe having to go up a chimney to clean it, <laughs> right. that kind of thing. There's this woman in my constituency called Joan, who I think is in her late 80s or 90s, and she's been a Labour Party member for about 70 years. Mm. And uh, she's brilliant, but she always says, oh, things were much worse in the past. (laughs) Things were really (laughs) terrible in the past. She's like, don't talk to me about like the days before the National Health Service or, you know, uh, when our family was incredibly poor. And, you know, most people sort of think of their own, but they rose tint the past. They think of it being better and they think young people are getting wilder. I mean, that's just part of getting older and you've got to sort of be on the lookout for that. And these glasses could help that, right? Yeah, I think so. Because I think probably the air smelled slightly fresher in the past maybe, maybe if you were true. outside of like heavily yeah. industrialized areas yeah less but air I think pollution that's about it. Yeah. less air pollution mm. yeah less air pollution but maybe if you had these VR three channels glasses, yeah three channels and the three channels weren't even on a lot of the time it and i wasn't allowed to watch card. itv yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> you're into this uh, the past tinted glasses yeah yeah definitely yep. definitely and you had one more idea jody i think that we should outlaw the purchasing of scented incense for all people, bar maybe religious reasons. But I just don't think people should be allowed to buy it. I think they should be stopped from buying it and be encouraged to either clean their houses or (laughs) develop personalities. Is that all scents? All scents? Well, I think incense in particular is just like, it's it's an excuse to not bother to develop your personality further. I've had a lot of very long and boring conversations with people about their particular brands of incense. Really? Yeah. Is that a thing? I think it's sort of kicking off in the millennials as well. Like people right, really I've, I've love the incense. I've not smelled any incense, but apart from when I was in India, I've not smelled incense for years. I wonder if it's something you go through a phase of. My wife really likes scented candles. Then you don't. Yeah, obviously, I totally respect her choice. <laughs> uh, yeah. Is it the choice of scents or, or do you just not like strong smelling things? I don't know. Scent, I don't do like you wear that. an aftershave? No. No, I don't wear enough to say. No, but you don't shave. That's <laughs> <laughs> my face. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I now have an image of you sort of plaiting yeah. incense sticks into your beard as a sort of revolt against Ed's dislike. Yes, well. yeah, that'll be, that's what I'll be doing. So, but incense week. is a particular type of scent. Yes. Yeah, I just find it very overwhelming. As an asthmatic person, oh, I feel God, very right. unwelcome in the oh, home. Oh, God, no, that's not good. Right? Yeah. I thought it was like an old person's thing. Well, I think I mean, it's... obviously with the greatest respect to my wife. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it is. I don't know. I just... Sometimes I have nightmares about it, just walking into rooms that are constructed of incense. Well, if you've got asthma and it gives you a funny turn, then that, you can see why. Thank you, Ed. Yeah. Not everyone respects me in this way. Well, you're well, very respected here. You definitely. If people want to find the podcast, it's Secret Dinosaur Death Cult. 
secret dinosaur cult. But See, I, I, put I love that you put the death in. I already it. I'm assuming it's a death cult. Maybe it could be a spin-off for like particularly vitriolic episodes. Yeah. Secret dinosaur death cult. Yes. But for the most part, secret dinosaur cult. It's everywhere that you would usually find your podcasts. Uh, you can come to live cult recordings. You can find all of those on our website, Secret Dinosaur Cult. We're on Twitter, at Secret Dino Cult. And yeah, people should just check it out. Sounds great. Yeah. And no incense. No incense. No incense. We Welcome. don't permit it yeah. at all. Uh, Jodie Mitchell, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Whoa, whoa, we're in the outro. Here we are. I'm you... off to the plastics. What? Oh, of course you are, yeah, yeah. You're not feeling any more festive than you were at the beginning of the episode. No, no. What about if, if when you turn up next week, if I've got the tree up, will that, will that help matters? No, bar humbug. <sighs> Dearie me. Do you know what we need to get on with? Staging some more live shows. Good idea. I've uh, missed being, being we do. out there. The yeah. smell of the grease yeah. paint, the roar yeah. of the crowds. Do you think they'd have us at the lunch centre? <laughs> Let it go. That should be your New Year's resolution, should be to... We can do it on the the parallel bars. (laughs) Although we are going to be going to the parkrun. Yes, yeah. I mean, mean, this has been sold into me as more of a park park stroll, a park amble. I don't don't have to run, do I? No, I'm sort of wondering what I should be wearing. Really? Have you, have you got a, a PE kit ready to go? Not really. Do you wear short shorts? No, not really. <laughs> just, just generally, what, what are you going to be wearing? Um, I, I imagine some, something that conceals yeah. as much of my body as yeah. possible. Well, maybe I'll go in a suit. <laughs> <laughs> a wet suit. Like one of those people. Oh, maybe, maybe you know, maybe we can sort of dress up as something. You know, like those people who run the marathon and sort of dressed as a sort of an elephant. Or something. I've suggested before now two ends of a pantomime horse, and you've you've rejected the idea. De- de- definitely not. Yeah. De- no, I'm not. I'm 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 not into the panto. Uh, I've never been asked to do panto. But you're not fishing for it. I'm definitely not fishing for panto. Oh yes, you are. Oh no, I'm not. Oh yes. See, you're a natural. <laughs> You'd be great. Right. We should thank our guests. Uh, I'd like to thank Penny Andrews and Georgia Harper. Both wonderful. And uh, the fantastic Jodie Mitchell. Emma Caution produces our podcast. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. The idents were made by James Deacon. Ed Seed is our composer. Emma, Emma Power. Power. Yeah, she designed the artwork. Uh, so so all that remains is, is our... Uh, little sign off at the end which I enjoy every yes. week I don't know if anybody else does but yeah. I certainly do he's been the salt of the earth he's been Mr Rinsade and these have been reasons to be cheerful mm-hmm.